Job chapter 40, beginning in verse 6. Job chapter 40, beginning in verse 6. The scripture says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Well, this week I had the opportunity to go to one of those big hardware stores. And I was going to pick up some vacation Bible school things, but in that hardware store I saw the lineup. It was like a lineup of race cars, the zero-turn mowers. There they were that can save me an hour and a half every week of work. What an awesome technology that zero turn is. And then right behind them, you walk a bit more and you come to these, what are washing machines and dryers that look more like spaceships. It looks like an escape pod, but it's a washer and dryer full of all kinds of technology. And it was just a reminder this week of how prosperous we are. We're just incredibly materially prosperous from lawnmowers to laundry machines, from clean water to clean clothes. It's just incredible the time in which we live and the world in which we live, especially in terms of material prosperity. But as Christians, friends, what would happen and how would we respond if all of that were stripped away? If that were stripped away, as it was in Job's case, how would we respond? Well, in the book of Job, we have a picture of how he responded, part of which was in error. And so we learn from Job, this morning's text, the dangers of pride and finding pride in who we are and what we have and what we've done. Because when it's stripped away, that pride can be exposed for what it is. So we look at it this morning as a, as a warning because Job was stripped of his possessions. He was stripped of his children. His wife told him to curse God and die. His so-called friends don't bring him comfort and consolation. They bring him condemnation. It is an incredible picture of horrific tragedy and suffering. And Job responds by the, to that by wanting to confront God. And as you work through the chapters, his bitterness becomes more poisonous. And his anger becomes more enraged toward God and he really believes that he's in the right and God's in the wrong and he wants to argue with God about it he wrongly charges God with being cruel he has a problem with the way God is ruling over his life the way God is managing in his life and what God has brought about he has a real problem with it and then God shows up and does speak to Job in power. And God reveals his power to Job. And God reveals his providence over all things to Job in a way that Job had not previously comprehended. 
And Job responds rightly with humility. He recognizes how glorious and great God is. And what he says in chapter 40 and verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. He's humbled. He's humbled. And now the text this morning, God highlights pride. And shows how Job was humbled of his pride. It is one of the darkest and most prevalent of human sins. And the reality is suffering especially can bring it to the surface. I think that's what you see in Job's case. I think that's what happens here. Usually for us in our dealings, usually pride manifests itself in our relationships. In fact, the Bible addresses that over and over again. The, the pride shows up interpersonally. Well, I think I'm better than this person. I think I can make better decisions than them. I'm right, they're wrong. I want my way. I don't really care so much about their way. It's about me and it's about I and what I deserve and who I am and what I've done and all this and that. This is something different. It is in terms of a relationship, but in, in the case of Job, and I think there's a temptation for us when we go through especially terrible suffering, that rather than in a relationship with other people, it could be we view God that way. That's what Job did. And that's why God says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you even put me in the wrong? So this morning's design is to protect us from pride. Pride that grows out of suffering. To protect us from pride. I believe that's what God is addressing here. Look at how God addresses it in verse 6. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, so again, God comes to Job in power out of the whirlwind and says to him in verse 7, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. God is exposing how Job has a lack of understanding of who God is and how much Job knows. Job has a lack of understanding in that. God reveals that to him. He says, dress for action like a man. This, this terminology was usually used in, in two contexts in the ancient world. Uh, it's essentially a call, get ready. Uh, that, that in the ancient world, they would wear these long robes and they would pull them up in two contexts primarily to go to work. If you go to do really hard work, you dress for action. Or if you go to battle. And I think that's the context here. Because Job has wanted to argue with God for about 30 chapters. And now part of God's response is, okay, dress for action and answer me if you can. Essentially, God is saying to Job, let's go to battle and let's see what you can say to me. And of course, Job is rightly silenced. Verse 8, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And here again, I believe, is where we see the response to pride. That this, this accusing God of wrongdoing flows from pride. To think that I am in the right and God is in the wrong would, would come from pride, as we'll see as we work through the rest of this passage. So first of all, in protecting ourselves from pride, we must understand God is never in the wrong. This is always a false conclusion. God is never in the wrong. We must not, we must not charge God with wrongdoing. This is what Job had done. If you go back to chapter 32, you see this. When Job is first rebuked by Elihu, the, the young man, Job 32, look at what Elihu says in Job 32 and verse 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. 
To, see, to think in terms of I'm right and I'm in the right and God is in the wrong and God was wrong to bring this about is an error and one that we must beware, especially in times of suffering. It is, it is a temptation in times of suffering to look at God and in anger say, how could you? As if I know better. As if I would have done something better. Don't charge God with wrongdoing. There's a rebuke here to Job and to all of us and a warning to us not to come to that conclusion. To have this assumption that I have a better understanding of how my life should go and how I should manage it rather than you. Part, part of what Job teaches us is how not to respond to tragedy. You have Job. You have Job's wife. You have Job's friends. All in error. All wrong in the way they respond to God. But then praise the Lord, you have Job's God who finally speaks and makes it clear at the end. It's wrong to find fault with God. That's one of the lessons we learn from this. This is a big book about suffering. It's really a book about God. But it's a big book, notice. And one of the key lessons is, don't be like Job's friends. Don't be like Job. At least through most of the chapters. Don't charge God with wrongdoing. And friends, if, if Job, who is a righteous man, a faithful man, if Job is susceptible to this sin of charging God with being in the wrong, certainly all of us are too. So to protect us from pride, we understand God is not ever in the wrong. And secondly, we understand we are not like God, which is the primary way God addresses Job in these last chapters. And that's what he goes on to do here. We recognize we are not like God. Essentially, we, we recognize God for who he is, and we recognize our place. And understand our place. God makes this very clear to Job. Look what he says. Verse 9. Have you an arm like God? Essentially, can you do what I do to save? The answer is no. Can you thunder with a voice like his? No. Verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Essentially, the point of that is you can't do this like God can. No man is majestic like God. No man has splendor like God. No man has glory like God. We are not like him. A right view of God, a right understanding of God's glory, splendor, majesty, and kingship protects us from pride. In fact, it makes pride like so many other sins. So much sin is insanity. It is insanity for a man to think he would ever be in the right and seek to justify himself in light of God and who God is and how great God is. We must understand we are not like God. We're not the king. Had the chance to go to Smoothie King this week. They've got a new slogan. I guess it's new to me. It's right there on their window at the drive-thru. Their slogan is, rule the day. Rule the day. Guess what? You can't. Now, why'd they make that their slogan? Well, that gets to, to me. <laughs> yeah! Gladiator! Take three of those. Then I can rule the day. Not. That, that, that quote, that motto appeals to something in me. It, it's pride. There's this, there's this well-known poem, maybe you know it, Invictus. You probably know one of the lines of it. It's become quoted more and more and more and more and more in our culture. 
It's, it's a blasphemous poem. I hate to even read part of it. But hopefully it'll make a, a, a point because I think we see it in Job here in this section. This idea of recognizing that we're not like God chased against the inclinations of man. Listen to what Invictus says. This is the last stanza. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, one of the immediate problems with that is I am. There's only one I am. You understand that people attribute attributes of God to themselves. It's pride that leads to that. I mean, Job, you're captain of your, your own soul. No, he's not. No, he's not. There's only one master of fate, and that's God. We need to understand we are not like God. Thirdly, we should understand and see from this passage what God does to the proud. And essentially, God's point here is, Job, you can't do this, but I do. It's frightening. This should cause us to not want to be proud. Look at Job 40, beginning in verse 11. This, this is God relaying the things that he does that no one else can do. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Only God can do that. And friends, it should be a warning to us to see what God does to the proud. My prayer is this will lead us to repentance and to humbly approach God, recognizing him for who he is, us for who and what we are. And if you are harboring pride or think highly of yourself, you should repent and turn from it. And it's probably a sin we'll need to be repenting of and turning from our whole life. It's like an onion. It's just exposed in different ways throughout life. But look what God says he does. He looks on everyone who is proud and abases him. The scripture says God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We need grace. We want grace. Look what else it says here in verse 12. He looks on everyone who is proud and brings him low. That's how God regards the proud. That's how God relates to the proud. Friends, we should fear him. Jesus said to fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Listen to what the Proverbs say. Here's just a couple of Proverbs that warn us against pride. Proverbs 6 and verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. It's a proud look to look up on high. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. To be a widow would be to face a distressing circumstance in your life, but it's better to be a widow than to be proud in God's economy. You see how God treats the proud. He tears them down. I don't want that for any of us. As I remember, all of us will give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to live our lives in pride. We want to be humble. We want to learn from Job and not respond to difficulty and struggle with pride. Pride that would charge God with being in the wrong. Pride that would seek to justify ourselves in light of what God has done. 
essentially whenever things happen, I, I don't know, I know, it's, I know it's the inclination of many people. I know it's at least my inclination. I want to blame somebody or something for it. I want to blame. And if we're Christians with a right and biblical view of God and understand God's providence, who, who logically is going to get the blame? But that's the wrong response. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Job is so valuable and so important. We need to recognize what God does to the proud. And then finally, we need to recognize that we cannot save ourselves. Something I think everybody in this room would affirm at least by confession, by verbal acknowledgement. I know I can't save myself. But look at what God says here at the end of this little section to Job. Verse 14 We'll go to verse 13. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. That goes with what he does to the proud. He puts them in the grave. Verse 14. Then I will acknowledge to you. Essentially, if you could actually do all these things, then I would acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And why do you think he says that? Why bring up in the context of abasing pride and challenging Job's wrong assessment that God is in the wrong, why bring up salvation here that your own right hand can save you? Well, you see how that's related to pride. I can do this. I did that. I mean, think about Job's circumstances. Is there anything Job can do about what's taken place or to get him out of his situation or to deliver him? Is there anything Job can do Would it be wise advice to tell, Job, just give it some effort, man. Or, Job, why don't you be good? I mean, that's what his friends tell him. Their assumption is, Job, you must have committed some horrible sin, so they bring some religious morality to him. Job, just be good. Job understands his own own hand can't save him. He needs God. God's the only one who can deliver him. God is the only one who can save. And you see how this is related to humility. And you see how this abases pride. We must be utterly dependent on another to bring us to God. That's Jesus Christ. If we can save ourselves, then Jesus does not need to die. But he did. It was utterly essential that Jesus die on the cross for our sins and be raised from the dead. He's the one who brings us to God. It's not my own arm. It's not our own strength that can save us. That your own right hand can save you. That you have strength in your own arm. No. We're utterly dependent on God to save us and then to ultimately bring us into his heavenly kingdom. We're dependents. That's pride abasing. I think that's why he brings up salvation here. You see this in the book of Jonah. This is one of the things Jonah teaches. Jonah chapter 2. Here you have the the instance of of a man of God who disobeys God and gets a lesson in Submission to the Lord. Goes the other way from what God told him. Ultimately gets swallowed by a great fish. And he's sloshing around in the belly of this great fish. And essentially he comes up with a poem. And it's it's, uh, Jonah chapter 2. It's Jonah chapter 2. He goes down to the roots of the mountain. He is in the belly of a fish at the roots of the mountain. He can do nothing to save himself. And that's why the conclusion of the poem is Jonah 2.9. Salvation is from the Lord. And then God commanded the fish, and the fish spit Jonah out. 
We've got to recognize we cannot save ourselves. This is where pride becomes utterly, incredibly dangerous. And it infects religious people. Like the rich young man who came to Jesus. The rich young man is one of the, I think, most misunderstood and misapplied sections of the New Testament. The rich young man comes to Jesus, and to understand him, you've got to understand his question. He comes to Jesus, and I I think he genuinely is seeking to understand and seeking answers from the Lord, the teacher. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's his error, which Jesus exposes. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And you learn he was a very religious man, right? In his view, I've kept the law. I've done all that. I've done those things, Jesus. And then Jesus exposed, you're an idolater. You love money. You haven't done that. I mean, you've broken the first commandment. You have another God and it's money. And then uh, essentially Jesus says to his disciples, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which again, I would just submit, people living in the most prosperous country in the history of the world should give careful attention and thought to. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. To which the disciples respond, well, who then can be saved? Who can be saved then? And Jesus answers the original question the rich young man asked. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's where we praise God and are so thankful. And that we recognize it's only through God, it's only through Jesus Christ that a sinner like me can be saved or would be saved. And that's what God is expressing to Job. Job, you can't save yourself as if you could. And when you can, then you give answer to me. And that's why Job is quiet. Until, so first Job humbles himself, and then what we're coming to in the next couple weeks is Job repents. But we recognize we cannot save ourselves. Now, a couple final points about this. Just pulling out and giving you a bigger picture of the book of Job up to this point where Job, or God confronts Job's pride in charging God with wrongdoing. Think about what's happened to Job. The horrors that have come into his life. And Job is, what, 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 was, the, what was Job's reaction to this revelation from God of himself? Humility. I'm of small account. So you see what's happened in the book of Job. The trials have humbled him. Because this is one thing the scripture teaches continuously. One of God's designs for trials in our life is to humble us. To, to, to help us recognize, I can't save myself. I'm dependent on another. I need help. I'm dependent on another. Think about what Jesus teaches about the vine and the branches. What is, what is the, the branch that bears fruit, that is connected to the, the vine, what does God do to that branch? He prunes it. He prunes it. Now, what is the purpose of his pruning? So that the branch would bear more fruit. Is that a good thing? What, is it, what, is, what does pruning entail? It entails cutting off something that is going to harm the plant. This is, this is not a fun experience, this, this pruning. But God has good designs in it. And his designs are for us to bear more fruit. This is God's way. And you see it with a a horrific example in the book of Job. And friends, by the time you get to the end of the the book, Job is bearing more fruit. 
but it comes through a great trial and it leads to his humility, friends. God is more concerned about us being humble. God is more concerned about our sanctification than he is about our comfort. And that's hard for us to understand given the life we live every day. But it's true. And that's why what the Bible says must direct what we believe and how we live. Well, why, why the trials? Why the trials? Why does God use this tool to bring about humility? Well, I think the reason is because we don't listen to words usually, do we? What gets our attention? What does it take to get our attention? Pain, oftentimes. Distress. Difficulty, struggle, which are characteristic in this world and in our life. It's like the doctor trying to advise the patient. Uh, the doctor advises the patient, you, you know, you've got to stay away from these foods, you need to start eating this, you, maybe you need to do exercise. The doctor advises the patient, and I know it's the frustration of many doctors, guess what? Patients don't listen. Or essentially they'll listen for 10 minutes. Yeah, I know that. They recognize the issue. But then they drive down the road and there's the Chinese buffet and it goes out the window until they have a heart attack. And it takes something like that to get the attention of a person. It takes something like pain oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, to get our attention. It's like a child. Do words work with kids? Oftentimes they don't. Usually you've got to do something else to get their attention. Well, let me turn you, in conclusion, to some voices from the past. Because maybe if, if you don't understand or don't hear me clearly, maybe you can hear what Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said. I'm glad I'm not alone. I've got Spurgey to help. Listen to this. I bear willing witness that I owe more to the fire and the hammer and the file than to anything else in the Lord's workshop. Sometimes I question whether I have ever learned anything except through the rod. Is that not true to life? And you think about the book of Job. God brought Job to humility. Well, John Newton wrote about this in a hymn. We sing Amazing Grace. That's the, the most well-known of, of Newton's hymns. He wrote another one, I asked the Lord that I might grow. I keep asking Michael to sing it. He sang it at least once. We, I don't think we sing it congregationally because it's, it's, it's a pretty hard hymn to sing. It's really a poem. Um, and, and so we want to sing songs that are familiar to us somewhat and, and that are easy to sing because there's people like me who can't sing songs. Sit around me and you'll understand. But Newton wrote about this very issue. Listen to it. This is a, I'm, let me read this hymn and I'll give you a little commentary on it. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. What a great prayer, right? This is what we want as Christians. I want to know God more. I want to seek him more. I want to know his love more. I want to grow in faith. And the next stanza. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I want to seek God. I want to know him more. And God has answered prayer but it's caused me despair. Now, listen to what he goes on to say. I had hoped in one favorite hour at once he'd answer my request. That's what we all hope when we pray. We have these requests. Many of them are good and hopeful, and we hope God is going to answer it. 
the way we think he's going to. I hoped at once he'd answer my request and by love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every heart. You mean God would allow the, the powers of hell to assault you? Have you read the book of Job? Yes. To sanctify us? Yes. The devil and his demons are tools in the hands of God. Ultimately for the good of God's people. That's how God uses the devil in the book of Job. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Now there's a key word in that line. This is why you've got to exegete hymns. Yea, with his own hand he seemed. What we experience, particularly the pain, can seem to be one thing, but really it's not. That's why the book of Job is so important too. Across all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. This is God's design in trials, to answer prayer for grace and faith. He uses trials to humble us. And here's the final stanza. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Newton understood. I think he understood the book of Job. Are all earthly schemes for joy bad? No. But some of them have to go so that we can find joy in the one who is truly the giver of joy. Friends, remember this. God has a plan for our eternal joy. Our eternal joy. That outweighs anything you'll experience here. These trials that are horrific, Paul describes his trials and says they're, this light momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory. We don't understand so much, but we do understand and we do learn from Job, God is not in the wrong. One of the reasons he brings things into our life that are painful is to humble us. The result of humbling us is to cause us to be dependent on him, which is how we're saved, by trusting his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy in Christ. We would remember, Lord, we all have feet of clay, but you are the Lord. God, help us to be encouraged that you have good plans, that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's those who trust Jesus. So Lord, help us to trust you. Those who are hurting in this room, and no doubt there are many, I pray they'd trust you and humbly be dependent on you. God, we pray that in this life you'd give them some relief from distress and pain. Help us to trust Jesus and recognize your good designs to humble us. So Lord, help us to be wise and not prideful and not to respond to you in bitterness or ever charge you of wrongdoing, but God, to count ourselves as a small account and you as great and glorious and mighty and that you will ultimately bring us to your heavenly kingdom. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.